You're listening to Threads Radio. My name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic.
that's one of those all-time desert island pieces for me uh one that says so much with so little and such total clarity so about two miles southwest of downtown houston is the campus of the university of st thomas on which can be found an irregular octagonal piece of 60s brutalism the inside of which houses 14 maroon and black paintings by Mark Rothko. This is the temple to quiet contemplation and modern art known as the Rothko Chapel. A year after it had been opened in 1972 and shortly after Rothko's own suicide, Morton Feldman's piece named after the chapel was first performed there. And Rothko and Feldman had been longtime friends, Feldman being a close associate of so many artists and painters of that time. It's one of his best known pieces and one in which for me he perfectly manages to capture the structure and effect of specific visual artwork. It's divided into five movements which he described as being an immobile procession not unlike the friezes on Greek temples. Rothko's imagery he says goes right to the edge of the canvas and I wanted the same effect with the music that it should permeate the whole octagonal shaped room and not be heard from a certain distance. Uh, if you can't get to the chapel itself, then I recommend sticking the old headphones on and heading down to see the Rothko room at Tate Modern, which is probably the closest parallel to the chapel in terms of layout and feel. That recording was performed by the University of California Berkeley Chamber Chorus, directed by Philip Brett, with David Abel, Viola, Karen Rosenack, Celeste and William Winnant on percussion. The album is Rothko Chapel and Y Patterns, the label New Albion, and that was released back in 
that I believe is the first ever piece of music scored for electronic instruments by female composer Johanna Bayer's Music of the Spheres from 1938, if you can believe. Though I'm having trouble locating the exact instrumentation and performers on that recording. Bayer was German-American. She was an acoustic as well as electronic music composer and a pianist. Pretty much nothing seems to be known about her prior to moving to the US from Germany. But when she was there, she moved in circles with that generation of modernists, including Ruth Crawford Seeger, Charles Seeger, Henry Cowell, John Cage, and so forth. That being said, her music seemed to be largely unknown during her lifetime. Uh, If you've been listening regularly to this show, you might have gathered this is becoming a bit of a theme. Though her music's pretty radical, she came up with some of the earliest examples of a pitch-based approach to rhythmic process, and quite a few of her works anticipate the minimalist revolution of the 60s. And I think if you ask someone blindfold to date that recording, they might put it in the late 1950s perhaps, and certainly not in the 1930s, which makes that piece all the more remarkable to my mind. That was released on an anthology of electronic music, volume 2, Second A Chronology, the label Sub Rosa, and the release was 2003.
Harrison's Suite Number no. 2 for strings from 1948. He's one of the big guns of American classical music with a massive wide-ranging output and he's particularly known for work influenced by the music of Southeast Asia with much of his music also using just intonation and microtonal tuning rather than equal temperament. So naturally, of course, I went out and selected a work that exemplifies none of those things. The second suite is early-ish, and I suppose barring the serial-esque second movement is fairly traditional by comparison, but it just has a really lovely clarity and elegiac quality to it. That's performed by the New Professionals Orchestra, conducted by Rebecca Miller, and the album is Lou Harrison Music for Strings, and that was released on Mode in 2009. And next up, the incomparable Robert Ashley. Sitting here, thinking about life in all its forms is one of those days so far where nothing fits. Breakfast at the Holiday Inn Hotel, where I live ordinarily, especially where I live in other places. I look forward to breakfast. Six cups of tea plain, three pieces of toasted bread, margarine and honey, and time to think about myself, the coordination of body and mind that I can do in a simple form. I don't take the tea to the table. I pour myself a cup of tea in one place and carry the cup to the table where I sit to drink it. Then I go back for another cup and so forth. Six trips more or less. Six cups of tea and three pieces of toast. I like the getting up and down part. It's a kind of exercise of something or other. One, freedom of choice. Two, freedom of movement. I've been in too many places in my life where it was all at the table and imposed a kind of discipline on me, especially that in the morning I don't like. It's too social, or whatever that word is. Let's call this little song tap dancing in the same Yesterday, because of the social pressure, I always feel when I don't eat breakfast alone. I ordered breakfast in my room. That was nice. Looking out through the glass doors over the little balcony into the river with all the barges going back and forth and all the buildings across the river where the people live. I thought to myself, what's in the barges? This is the kind of question I think about at breakfast. According to Cicero, whoever he is, only people with a powerful memory know what they intend to say and for how long they are going to speak and in what style and what points they have already answered and what still remains. And they can remember, too, from other cases, many arguments which they have previously advanced, and many which they have heard from some other people. 
unquote. We are in the presence of amazing powers of memory. Let's call this one the last 1,000 hours or almost six weeks. The movement by man-to-man photographer of contrasts or research in the colonization of German music by the African spirit. One, the history. Two, the uh, casualties. I think of myself very much as an organization man. It's all inside me, if you know what that might mean. I believe there are either five kinds of character or seven kinds of character. One is the organization man. Another might be called the interpreter. Another might be called the helpful woman. Another might be called the woman of the different voice or different way of speaking and so on. Each of these characters has its equivalent, I suppose, in the world of unshared knowledge. Now, the question of whether we mold our characters to satisfy that requirement is a question I couldn't possibly answer here. It could be answered, and I could answer it, but not here. It's enough to point out the importance of those equivalencies, assuming that the fact has crossed every person's mind, if only as an answer to why movies, and to remind us that this movie, no less than any other, depends on the notion of the archetype, or its believability. We are not interested in skin as such, or hair as such, or bone structure as such. We are not interested in those lessons. We can hardly bring ourselves to look into the mirror in the morning. It is true that to reconstruct our image of ourselves individually each day to return from dreams is difficult, so it is not an interest in skin and hair or bone structure that brings us to this movie. So what brings us to this movie not innocence or ignorance? I know there is not one person in this audience who would claim to be surprised. So innocence or ignorance is out. So what brings us to this movie? A commission from Fandango di Spagnolo. Look at that, Sheila. How nice. Quote in the earthly copies of Justice and Temperance and other ideas which are precious to souls. There is no light, but only a few approaching the images through the dark organs of sense. Behold, in them 
the nature of that which they imitated on board. I don't understand that. In the earthly copies of justice and temperance and other ideas which are precious to souls, there is no light but only a few approaching the images through the darkling organs of sins. Behold in them the nature of that which they imitated. I don't understand that. Anyway, later, from Skepsis, says Strabo, came Metrodoros, or Metrodoros, a man who changed from his pursuit of philosophy to political life and taught rhetoric for the most part in his written works. And he used a brand new style and he dazzled many. He seems to have played a considerable political as well as cultural role at the court where he was for a time in high favor, though Plutarch hints that he was eventually put out of the way by his brilliant but cruel master. I think I understand that.
Dancing in the Sand by Robert Ashley from 2004. He's a truly unclassifiable composer and multimedia artist, possibly best known for a series of television operas, though they're a long way from operas, it's traditionally understood. They're kind of mixed media, abstract music dramas that seem to fuse 60s minimalism and fluxus with the gnomic style of David Lynch and the radical experimentalism of Jean-Luc Godard's later films. Uh, If you get a chance, I totally recommend watching some of his incredible seven-part opera, Perfect Lives, which you can catch online. Tap Dancing in the Sand was originally written as a text in 1979 before being set to music specifically for the Dutch ensemble, MAE, in 2004. The plot is classic Ashley, convoluted, elliptical, transcendental, and concerns, as far as I can make out, a commission from Niccolo Paganini to Hector Berlioz to compose a work. Ashley took quotations of various ancient authors from The Art of Memory by Francis Yates and strung them together along with his own notes. He says, I didn't do any research on the character of Berlioz. That seemed wrong. But a few years earlier, I had worked with the composer Alvin Lussier on a series of four motion pictures where Lussier played the part of a very funny character named Dr. Chicago. I discovered that, curiously, Alvin thought of himself as a kind of reincarnation of Berlioz. So I decided to portray Berlioz as Alvin Lussier playing the part of Dr. Chicago. That became a starting point and had the added charm of trying to imitate a real person whom few people would know about playing an entirely fictional character. Um, And if you can follow that, then you're doing a better job than I am. But aside from all the elusiveness of the text, there is a fair amount of complexity and formalism in terms of its delivery. At first, the instruments imitate the stresses and rhythms of the spoken word. And then later on, they embellish the pitches of the words as much as they can, uh, translating, if you like, the word into instrumental music. The result is somehow both impossible to understand and completely hypnotic due so much, I think, to Ashley's distinctive vocal delivery, and in this piece, the circularity of those jazzy harmonies. Uh, That was performed by Robert Ashley, along with Ensemble MAE, the album Tap Dancing in the Sand, and that was released on Unsounds in 2007.
Five Improvisations from 1934 by Amy Beach. So here we finally have a female composer who is better recognized within her own lifetime. She was a child prodigy and went on to become a concert pianist and one of the first acclaimed and reasonably internationally well-known American composers. Uh, she's certainly the first female American composer to have had a symphony performed. She was part of the East Coast Boston Six, and though that sounds like a prohibition-era criminal fraternity, it was in fact a loose composers collective, also known as the Second New England School. Those pieces, the five improvisations, were written in the last few years of her life and for me there's just a real deftness of touch to them and also a great performance there by Michel Legrand on piano. The album is American Piano Music and that was released on Apex in 2003. Next this is Undine Smith Moore. Crystal stare and life again. 
Three choral pieces there by Undine Smith-Moore. In order, you heard Mother to Son, Tambourines to Glory, and We Shall Walk Through the Valley, variously written between 1955 and 1977. Undine Smith-Moore was African-American and the granddaughter of slaves. She went on to become Professor Emeritus at Virginia State University, and by all accounts, she was a brilliant and pretty fastidious teacher. Uh, She predominantly wrote choral and vocal music, modestly describing herself as being a teacher who composes rather than a composer who teaches. And a lot of her music seems to have been inspired by African-American spirituals. So that was performed by Vocal Essence Ensemble, conducted by Philip Brunel. The album is Dance Like the Wind, Music of Today's Black Composers, and that was released on Clarion in 2004. Next, one of those milestones of American classical music. This is Charles Ives.
classic from the inimitable Charles Ives. That's the unanswered question, originally written in 1908 and revised in the 30s. It's a quasi-programmatic piece, the slow, quiet strings, according to Charles Ives, representing the silence of the Druids, whilst a solo trumpet poses the perennial question of existence, to which a woodwind quartet tries to provide an answer, growing more frustrated and dissonant until eventually they give up. And those three groups of instruments perform in independent tempos and are placed separately on the stage, with the strings being completely off stage. Um, and those aspects alone make it, in my mind, no less radical than that roughly contemporaneous classic of disruption, The Rite of Spring. That was performed by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. The album is Bernstein's Century, Ives the Unanswered Question, and that was released on Sony Classics in 1998. And now closing out this first part of my trawl through classical Americana, this is William Basinski.
that's a really gorgeous sound bath. That's about half of William Basinski's Water Music 2 from 2003. And it just has a lovely circular ambience to it with those fluid rippling motifs weaving around each other in those subtle and I think continually changing combinations. It's a really delicate sound world, though one actually with quite a bit of grit in the low end. Basinski described it as being music for a place rather than a film. He's a composer and sound artist probably best known for a series of four albums called The Disintegration Loops, in which recycled earlier music of his is played on tape loops that gradually decay each time they pass over the tape head. That's well worth checking out as well. So the album there was Water Music 2, the label 2062, and that was released in 2003. And that concludes part one of the Tonics Classical Americana. Thanks to everyone at Threads for hosting. I'll be back on Wednesday the 5th of June at the same time. Thank you for listening.